Turn in your Bibles with me to Second Thessalonians, where we left off the last time. We'll begin our reading today in verse 13 of chapter 2. Just as a brief, hopefully, recap of where we've been the last several weeks, First Thessalonians was a book that really presented the blessings to the church. Our blessed hope, Paul tells us, is what he referred to as the harpazo in the Greek, the snatching away of the church. He outlined that for us beautifully throughout the entire book of First Thessalonians, referring over and over again to the second coming of our Lord, and especially in chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, where Paul says there that we will not precede those who have died before us, but they will be taken up. The graves will be opened, Paul tells us, and they'll be caught up, harpazo. And then we who remain, those of us who are still alive on the earth, will be also caught up to be with them in the clouds, with the Lord Jesus, and there we shall always be. Paul encouraged the Thessalonian church with these words. And it's so very, very important as we come closer to that, to that day that he was speaking of, even in his day, he expected it to be any time in an imminent return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Of course, we all know that that did not happen in Paul's day. It doesn't mean that Paul was wrong. It just means that Paul emphasized the need for the church to be ready for the inevitability of it perhaps happening today. In other words, live for Christ as though it were going to take place. Because you don't want to be caught off guard. You don't want to be living in sin when the Lord does return. Because if you are living in sin, you may be caught up, but you won't be standing before Him unashamed, as the Apostle John suggests we all need to be. We're going to be talking about the fact that we will be indeed standing before Him in that day when He catches us up into the clouds, and then we will be with Him. And we're going to focus our time today on primarily that particular topic. But in Second Thessalonians, recall that we've been looking at the events that are going to be taking place upon the earth that are known to us as the seven years of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord. We focused over the last couple of weeks on the events, at least some of them, that are going to be preceding that period of time. And also we talked about the details, at least part of the details. There are many more things that we could say about that seven-year period of time. But we covered that ground because in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the first portion of it, Paul emphasized the fact that it hasn't happened yet. And he gave reasons for us to realize that tribulation has not taken place. And there's two things that Paul tells us in that passage in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that the church needs to be aware of that are signs of the eventuality of this, these things that he speaks of to come to pass. There are two things that must first take place, Paul says. The one is the apostasy, the departing or departure from the faith. That is a reality that will happen. And we've seen sort of portions of the evidences of that in the churches throughout the church age. And it does seem to be getting more and more 
likely that this apostasy that Paul was speaking of is going to become fully accomplished in our lifetime, perhaps. But the apostasy will be preceding the tribulation. The departure from the faith. There will be a reason for it. Something will happen to cause that apostasy to take full bloom. And I believe that that is what we refer to as the rapture of the church, or in Paul's language of the Greek language of the day, the the, uh, harpazo of the church. Secondly, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that after that, there will be one who will come on the scene, who will be the beast described in the book of Daniel, in in the book of uh, Revelation. The Antichrist, we know him as that, because John the Apostle uses that term, Antichrist. And we talked about that eventuality, that particular person. Nobody knows who it is. Nobody knows when he will show up. I want every one of us here to know, I've mentioned it before, and it's worth repeating, let's not be looking for the Antichrist. Let's look for the Christ. Because Jesus himself said, Keep looking up, your redemption draws near. Jesus didn't warn us that when you see the Antichrist sign that peace treaty with Israel, that's when I'm going to be coming for the church. He never said that. He said, keep looking up, your redemption draws nigh. That's why Paul, over and over again, talked about the fact that we as a church will not experience the wrath that is to come because he's taking us out. Now, some may consider that to be an escapist point of view. I, it is. As a matter of fact, it definitely is. But Jesus told us, pray that you may escape these things that are coming upon the earth. He didn't say that because he thought we ought to be wimps. He just said, be prepared. And so we should be. We should know the Word of God. We should understand what God's Word says with regard to the end times. And so that's why we spend so much time focusing our Sunday morning times here in this place and all over the world where the Word of God is taught I think there's a great focus on eschatology. There has been ever since Hal Lindsey began the great move of the Holy Spirit, I believe, in the church where the church became awakened to the fact that these are the last days. He's only one of many who focused on these things. And I want us to be able to say, we know what the Word of God says with regard to the end days. That's why we spend so much time talking about it. It's good for us. It's good for Thessalonians, even in Paul's day. Remember, Paul told the Thessalonian church in only the three Sabbath days that he was there in Thessalonica all about these events that we're discussing here today. So, yeah, Paul thought it was important enough to tell them. And, of course, the Lord saw to it that what he told them was recorded for us so that we could know as well what's going to happen in the end times. So the last two weeks we focused on that seven year period of tribulation. A terrible time. A difficult time. Many people will die. Over half the world's population will perish. The Antichrist will reign instead of Christ. That's what anti means. Instead of. It also means against. So either way, The Antichrist in that time fits that description very, very well indeed. He's in fulfillment of all the prophecies that Daniel made with regard to the last days. He's in fulfillment of all of what 
Revelation speaks of. From chapter 6 of the book of Revelation to chapter 19. He talks about the things that are going to take place on the world. And it is not a happy time. There will be no peace, even though he comes upon the earth proclaiming that he is a man of peace. He's a liar. And he's going to be indwelt by the devil of uh, the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. So those are the two things, the apostasy of the church and the coming of the lawless one. And when I told you last week that after we finished our discussion last week, I suggested to you that we would focus on the church. Where is the church? What are we doing? Are we on the earth at the time? My answer to that is no. Not everybody teaches that way. There are some who believe that the church will go through the tribulation period. I'm not one of them. But we're going to focus on what the Bible says with regard to the church during this period of time. Next week, if we're still here, we're going to be looking at the millennial reign of Christ. So it is an eschatology of all of those things that the Word of God speaks on and gives us insight into. Now, I want to make one thing known. A lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you today is, of course, speculative. It's not doctrine. I don't want to stand here and say, it will happen this way, and if you don't believe me, you're going to be lost forever. That's not the case at all. I'm just suggesting that what I share today is what I believe to be the most likely of scenarios. So bear with me if you think that I'm wrong in any detail, but let's look at the Scriptures together and to see if perhaps what the Scriptures say with regard to these last times might make sense in the sense that I am presenting it to you here this morning. I'm going to begin with this verse of Scripture in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, But we are abound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I've underlined that phrase, belief in the truth, because it is His Word, and His Word is true. He goes on to say in verse 14, To which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we will be in His presence, obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. We will see His glory Paul tells us elsewhere that we will see Him face to face. We will know as we have been known. Now we look as in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. He's looking forward to the time when we will be in the Lord's presence. And I want us all to have that same great expectation, that marvelous blessed hope that is ours through Christ alone. Because God called us to this. It's recorded in the gospel that has been presented to us. We shall obtain that glory. And therefore, he says in verse 15, Brethren, stand fast and hold the tradition which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. 
And then he has this benediction, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Comfort you. How can one be comforted if one believes that he or she is going to be suffering through a time of tribulation such as no man has ever known nor ever shall be again? How can we be comforted if we believe that God is going to allow us to be persecuted and He does allow the church to be persecuted throughout the church age? There has been persecution. There has been great suffering. But nothing like what will take place in that period of time. And the source of the tribulation in those days, is not from God. I should say, back up. These days in which we live, the source of our tribulation is not from God. Satan is the source of our tribulation. But in that period of time, that seven years, that tribulation will be God's doing. So, we won't be there. I'm glad of that. I shut it off. Okay. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. If the church is not on the earth during that seven year period of tribulation, then the only explanation for that is the rapture of the church. And so what are we going to be experiencing during that seven years of tribulation upon the earth. I hope to answer at least partly that question today. Read with me from verse 1 of chapter 19. In chapter 19, the book of Revelation changes remarkably from the terrible time of the tribulation to a marvelous time in the presence of the Lord. John has been seeing many, many different things. He's been given these revelations And he's been invited, remember in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, God spoke to him, come up here. And then he was in heaven observing wonderful things. Then in chapter 6, through chapter the end of chapter 18, John is given many, many descriptions of the terrible things that will be happening on the earth. Now in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, he returns his focus to the things that are taking place, I believe, during the same period of time that those events that he has just described had been taking place. Take note of the very first words of chapter 19. Verse 1 says, After these things. That's a phrase that John used in more than one place in the book of Revelation. It means, specifically, there's a timeline involved. John is saying, After these things that have taken place, this is what will take place. Well, it's interesting that, as I said, he has already said this phrase after these things earlier on in the writing of the book of Revelation. So there's a chronology here. There's a way that we can know that things are going to happen sequentially that John does reveal to us through this wonderful book. Well, verse 1 of chapter 19, again, John is in heaven. And he says, After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! 
Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Can you sense the excitement here? Can you get a sense of what John is observing? This is a wonderful, beautiful, powerful demonstration of God's presence that John is observing. He's hearing voices. We'll go back a little bit and talk about some of that momentarily. But listen, he is so pumped. And I want us to be so pumped about what John is revealing in this particular passage because it really is so very good for us who believe. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Then in verse 7 he says, listen, this is important. This is crucially important. What we read here is for the church. He says, let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell to his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need your help to discern all that you have spoken through this word today. And Lord, I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom to take that knowledge that we have from your word and apply it in our own lives. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with understanding, with knowledge, with a peace that passes all understanding and the joy of the Spirit as we study your word together in Jesus' holy name. Amen. After these things, he heard a loud voice. He doesn't tell us the source of the loud voice. Perhaps one of the angelic beings. If you have read any of your revelation readings that we have been involved in over the course of time, you may recall that John has described certain beings in that heavenly realm, besides the Father seated on the throne. For instance, in chapter 5, he saw one like the Lamb of God, who came to the throne to take the scroll that no one could open. No angel, no man on earth, no man in heaven. The implication is men were already then in heaven. That's another reason why we proclaim the rapture of the church must take place before the events that follow after these things that John has just begun to describe. And that lamb takes the scroll and he opens the first seal. 
And then you see the events that follow that opening of the seal. And then the next seal is opened. And the next seal. And the next seal. Seven seals in all are opened. And it is a description of the events that will take place on the earth. Destruction. Terror. Absolute chaos. For a period of seven years. And then he continues to talk about those events from another point of view. And he says there were then seven bowls of judgment that were opened and poured out. And that again describes that same period of seven years. And then finally, he describes after the seventh bowl has been poured out, that seven trumpet sounds are blasted. And each sounding of the trumpet is a final judgment of God. And there comes a time when John says that after those trumpet blasts, there was silence in heaven for about a space of a half an hour. Total silence because of what had just taken place. The enemy has been defeated. Antichrist has run his course. He and his false prophet have done terrible things throughout the world in that seven-year period of time. And in chapter 17 and chapter 18, the Antichrist and his prophet and the systems that they put into place are destroyed by the Lord. That's why, in chapter 19, we hear the loud voice of great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Because Satan loses the fight. And this is a time of celebration. This is a time of rejoicing. But what does take place during that period of seven years with regard to the church? Alright, so we're in heaven. Let's assume for a moment that I'm correct in that basic assumption. What are we going to do? Well, we have to go back to Second Corinthians. And we can see an answer that's found there. Second Corinthians, chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 9, says this, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known of God, and I also trust are well known in your own consciences. Take a look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What we just read about in 2 Corinthians, where it mentions the judgment seat of the Lord, the word for judgment is bima. It's a bima seat. It is a special judgment that takes place. It's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment for determining particular rewards that men would receive. It was common in the Greek games of the day that the judge of the games would sit on the bema seat and he would disperse the rewards to the winners of the races or the wrestling matches or whatever the uh, event might have been. They received a garland. It fades away. It's just temporary. Here in chapter 3, 
of 1 Corinthians, we read these things. Beginning in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. This is the Bema Seat judgment of the Lord. What is he saying here? We're not judged for the purpose of obtaining salvation. That is not what this is all about. You are already saved if you are present in this particular judgment of Christ. The judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the same as what is later on spoken of by Apostle John in the book of Revelation as a great white throne judgment. There are two separate judgments. The Bema seat or judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ is for the church and is to determine the rewards that we receive for the works that we have done in our bodies, whether good or bad. In that other judgment, the, the, the uh, great white throne judgment, that is a judgment for the unbelievers, the Christ-rejecting, God-rejecting world. And they will be facing the condemnation of God because they did not receive the truth. I'd like to go back to Second Thessalonians for a moment because I want to emphasize a couple of things with regard to truth. Last week, we read that first few verses in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, and in verse 10, it stands out in my mind of something of great value to us. He says there, "...with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved." He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about those who rejected the truth. They did not receive the truth. But listen, he says in verse 11, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. He's not talking about the church. The church is not present during this time. And then he says in verse 12, And they all will be condemned who did not receive the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you see, there's a distinction in the Word of God between those who receive the truth, the believers, and those who reject the truth, the unbelievers. The destiny of both groups is entirely different, but determined by God well in advance of all the things that maybe have taken place throughout the ages. And there is coming a day when the church is going to receive that which they are deserving of in that Bema Seat judgment. I believe it will happen in heaven during that seven-year period of time. And here's one of the main reasons why. I use an allegory here because it is something that the Lord uses oftentimes in the Word of God. It's a picture. And it goes like this. Basically, the Hebrew concept of wedding somewhat different than ours. In Jesus' day, especially in Paul's day, in John's day, in the first century era. And it happened throughout many, many years before and after this. But it was commonplace for a man to be betrothed to a woman at perhaps an early age. Perhaps it might have been 
the result of their parents getting together and basically choosing the mate for your son or daughter. That was an acceptable method. It also could be that the young man was looking for a wife and he found a woman that he was very interested in and he goes to that woman's parents and offers a dowry, offers a, a, a wedding plan offer to them. And if they accept it, and if she accepts it, then they would drink a cup of wine, acknowledging the offer, and then they would be officially betrothed, engaged. It's an espousal. It's binding. They could not get out of that binding contract except for the fact that a bill of divorcement would have to be written. So they were considered married, married even though they hadn't consummated the ceremony of the consummation of the wedding. Hasn't taken place. I believe, because the Hebrew wedding process was designed in this way, it's a picture of what I believe will take place with regard to the church. The groom would go and prepare a place for the consummation of the wedding to be done. The bridal chamber. It would be done typically in his father's property, in his house. And it would be the father who would let the bridegroom know, yep, it's ready. That would circumvent the possibility of the groom getting too quick in, 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 in getting his bride before he should have. So there was a, an oversight by the father that the son could only go to get his bride when the father said it's time. You know that that's exactly what God the Father will do with Jesus the Son. Jesus will not go to retrieve his bride until the father says go. It's in the word of God. And it's very much like the Hebrew custom. After the bridegroom leaves his father's home to go get his bride, they come together and they are in the bridal chamber for a period usually of about seven days. The number seven is pretty important throughout the scripture. We see in Daniel's prophecy 70 weeks of seven. We see the tribulation is a period of seven years. We have the seven days of the week. We have sevens throughout the Word of God that have great significance, numerologically. So why wouldn't it be that that seven years during the tribulation would be likened to the seven days of the consummation of the wedding? There was a great great, um, Messianic Jew who passed away several years ago. His name was Zola Levitt. And he wrote a book on this concept. It's intriguing. It's a good read. If you can find a copy of it, look it up. But I say this to say that I believe it's very, very, and most likely actually, that we will be experiencing the Bema Seat judgment of Jesus Christ throughout that seven-year period of time. In heaven, we will be prepared by the Lord Whether it's individually or collectively, none of us knows. But the bottom line is this. According to what we read in 2 Corinthians and also in 1 Corinthians, there is a judgment that will take place. And I believe it will be there in heaven during that period of time. 
so that at the end of the tribulation, when the Lord has finally put down all opposition, the beast and the false prophet have run their course, they're about to receive the judgment of God, and all of this activity that we just read in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation has been properly, completely fulfilled, then verse 7 of chapter 19 becomes a reality. The bride has made herself ready. All of that preparation is to make it so that she can be presentable to her groom. And again, let's read it together. Let us be glad and rejoice in verse 7 of chapter 19. Give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. She's now no longer the bride, no longer the one who is going to be married. She is at the point of becoming her husband's wife. When I've conducted the many marriages that I've been conducting over the course of my 22 years in ministry, I always look forward to the statement, I now pronounce you husband and wife. This is what's taking place in heaven. The pronouncement is made. She is now his wife. I'd like you to turn with me now to an Old Testament scripture that is a picture, I believe, of that very event. Turn with me to Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is recognized by all theologians, by Jew or Gentile, as in a messianic psalm, which means it's a psalm about the Lord, the Messiah, the one who is to come. We recognize the Messiah as Jesus. The Jews don't. But they look at this psalm and they say, that's about the Messiah. Take note of what he says in verse 6, where David is speaking on behalf of the Lord. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He's talking to God, but he's saying, God, your God, God. Does that imply to you that perhaps the Son of God is indeed God? I hope it does, because that's exactly what it's saying. But listen, he says even more importantly, what follows this. He says in verse 8, All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes, aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands who? The queen in gold from Ophir. He is a king. She is a queen. The implication is, she is his wife. They are married. This is a son. And he is experiencing here in this psalm the experience of every new husband seeing his wife adorned in her marriage attire for the first time. And then he says in verse 10, Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. He's talking to you and me. Forget your parents. Forget your heritage. 
This is the one that you should worship. This is the one that you should be longing for, hoping for, the great love of your life. Forget your own people. So the king will be will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And then he goes on and talks about other groups of individuals. And I'm not really sure we can identify exactly who they are. But listen, he says in verse 12, And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. And the virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. As a possibility, I suggest two things. These may be the tribulation saints and the Old Testament Jews that are being referred to here. But the wife, the one that is spoken of, is the church. The king, the one who is spoken of in that passage, is Jesus Christ. So there's a beautiful picture of what is taking place here in the book of Revelation chapter 19. Again, turn back now to that book of Revelation with me and read further with regard to this marriage. He says two things here that are important. We've already just discussed the first. He says in verse 7 again, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And then he says in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Remember the beam of seed of judgment? That is what we are now clothed in. The judgment that has taken place during that seven-year period of time in heaven has resulted in us being clothed in fine linen, clean and bright. And that's important because there's no other group that receives this honor. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, the marriage has taken place. Seven years it takes for the church to be purified in order to enter into that place where she can be presented as his wife. The bride has made herself ready. The wedding has been consummated. Now there's work to be done. But he mentions first, before the things that he continues to speak of, subsequent to this passage that we just read, he mentions the supper, a feast, a time of fellowship. It's like our current reception after a wedding. And take note of the fact that oftentimes the wedding is held in a building like this, a church building, and then the reception is held in another place. A public place, like a reception hall, where there are more places for a large gathering to be able to collectively rejoice with the new husband and wife. It's very much like the receptions that we are comfortable with, that we're familiar with. But I want to point out to you that there are several portions of Scripture that speak of this. And the reason I bring this to mind is because... I believe that this marriage supper will not take place in heaven, but it will be in a public place where many will be invited on the earth. So hold on to your hats. We'll get back to the marriage supper in a few minutes. But I want to continue with what is going to actually take place when the marriage has been finally consummated and she has shown herself before the 
heavenly host, the angels and those who were there in that day, whoever they may be, certainly we have the four and twenty elders, we have the four beasts, we have the angelic hosts, we have the souls of the tribulation saints, we have the souls of the Old Testament saints. If you read your scriptures carefully, you will not find the resurrection of either of those two groups until after the tribulation is over. Keep that in mind. Go back with me to verse 9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings of God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is describing the kingdom. Things that are going to take place on the earth when he returns. He gives this particular statement in response to the fact that there were some things that had taken place where they marveled at what was happening. And even Jesus marveled at what was happening or what had just taken place. It was a Gentile who had sought the healing of the servant. And Jesus healed the servant without having to go to the Gentile's home. But he marveled not at his apostles' faith, but at the centurion's faith. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then in verse 11, he says this, And I say to you, that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not talking about in heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he had prayed that wonderful prayer and taught the disciples how to pray it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. On earth. His kingdom is going to be on earth. It will be established. And here it says that they will come from the east and the west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a festival time. That is a time of feasting. It is a time that I believe is a description of that marriage supper of the Lamb. There's another verse that also refers to that in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus is again talking, telling them how difficult it is to enter into this way that he's been describing. And he says in verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught, and we taught, and you, you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob 
and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. You see what Jesus is saying? There's going to be a feast, and there will be some who will be allowed in, and others will not be allowed in. And it's on the earth. So, my suggestion, my understanding, based upon what we've been reading, is that the marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place upon the earth. Well, that would require that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets will have been raised from the dead. Yes, it does that. And also the tribulation saints will also be raised from the dead. When Jesus comes back to the earth, there will be a series of events that will take place. Described later on in Revelation, which we will not read today, but perhaps next time. But here, suffice it to say that he is going to take the few moments that it will take him to crush the rebellion and destroy the armies that are gathered against him at the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. He will then take the beast and the false prophet and cast them into the lake of fire. He will then have Satan bound for a thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ. It will be at that time that a judgment will be done for all the people on the earth who are still alive after all of the destruction that has taken place in that seven-year period of time. Jesus refers to that when he speaks of the judgment of the goats and the sheep. The sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And he tells that wonderful story, and I believe it's not just a parable, but it's a real event that will take place. Those on his left will be told that they're not welcome. Those on his right will be told that they can enter into the kingdom. Not based on anything that they deserved, but based on his grace and mercy. Only because they were willing to give one of his brothers a glass of water, shelter, care. But they will enter in in their mortal bodies. I believe that in that feast, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will have been raised from the dead as the church will have been already raised from the dead seven years prior to that event. The tribulation saints in the book of Revelation are seen asking the Lord, how long before you take vengeance upon us? And he tells them, just a little while longer until the remainder of the saints are also martyred during that tribulation period. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about what we refer to as the tribulation saints, those who would not take the mark of the beast. They will be martyred during that period of time. They're in heaven. Their souls are in heaven during that seven-year period, but they're not part of the church. They will be resurrected separately, and they will enter in to the millennial, millennial reign of Christ, as will the Old Testament faithful patriarchs throughout the ages. They too will enter in, in glorified bodies. And then we, the church, the tribulation saints, and the Old Testament saints, will be all of us involved in reigning with Christ for a thousand years. There will be mortals still on the earth, and we'll be looking at that next week. 
So I don't want to get ahead of myself. There's more to come with regard to all of the details that are given to us in that portion of God's Word that speaks on those things. But I do want to say one last thing with regard to that set of events. And it's found in Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. Chapter 12 of the book of Daniel completes the prophecies regarding the end times. And in chapter 12, Daniel gives us insight that is found nowhere else in the Word of God. In verse 7 of chapter 12, He says, Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. The holy people are the Jewish nation. They will be shattered. Their pride will no longer be a problem. There are many other passages of Scripture that we could turn to, but here is the end of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years. Notice that he says, a time, times, and half a time. That is three and one half years of time. A time being one year, times being two more years, and a half a time for a total of three and a half years. It's also known in the book of Revelation as a period of time described by John as 42 months. 30-day months, 1,260-day years. In fact, the words 1,260 days are also found in the book of Revelation. There is a period of time that's specific, 1,260 days in the first half of the tribulation, 1,260 days in the second half of the tribulation, making a total of seven years of 360-day years. That was a time in John's day of a full year, 360 days. It got changed later on by the Romans, but for the most part, that was what they used for a calendar in a year, 360 days. And it makes perfectly good sense that uh, Daniel would be describing three and a half years in the very same way, because it was like that in the Babylonian calendar as well. But later on, here in chapter 12, he begins then to to describe for us something of great importance. Take a look again at what he says here in verse 8, "...although I heard, I did not understand." And then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Well, friends, we have an open book in front of us. It was sealed to him, but it's no longer concealed for us. The revelation of God is a revealing, an opening up of the closed box, if you will. It's God's revelation to us in this hour. We are the ones that he's speaking of when he says, at the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. That's the church. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. That's you and me. We have wisdom from God's word to understand what he has been speaking to us, if we listen. 
Well, verse 11 says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, that's at the very middle of the tribulation period, that's when the Antichrist enters into the Holy of Holies and proclaims himself to be God. That's at the end of the three and a half years, first three and a half years, and at the very beginning of the second three and a half years. 1,260 days have already transpired since the signing of the peace treaty. He has made an abomination of desolation in the temple. That's what... Daniel is speaking of in this portion of Scripture. From that time, when the sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Well, Daniel, wait a minute, you said 1260. What's this extra 30 days all about? Well, none of us knows for sure. I'm going to give you my opinion. Remember, when Jesus comes and after the battle of Armageddon, which takes place in a moment, and he puts the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire and he casts Satan chained into the bottomless pit. Then he begins his judgment of the nations. It may be, I believe, possibly, that it will take about 30 days. That's the 30 days, perhaps, that he's describing there. 1290 days. Well, wait a minute, there's more. Daniel continues. He says in verse 12, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1335 days. That's an extra 45 days. What are you doing to us, Daniel? I thought you said it was 1260, then you changed it to 1290, and now you're saying it's 1335. Which is it? The answer to that question is yes. All of the above. The 1260 is the three and a half years at the end of the tribulation period. The extra 30 days, I believe, is the judgment of the nations. The next 45 days, well, guess what, folks? There's a marriage supper of the Lamb that has to be celebrated. And the saints of God have to be there. And the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints will have to have been raised from the dead. And now we're all invited to the wedding feast. All of the judgment has passed. Now is the time of celebration. It's perfect that this particular event that we know as the Lamb's marriage supper will take place. Now, there are some who say, well, hey, it doesn't have to stop after just 45 days. You've got a whole thousand years to have a feast, and it will be a time of feasting. It'll be a time of rejoicing. It'll be a time of celebration. It'll be time a time when the Lord will reign supremely with a rod of iron. There will be men and women born in those years. We'll look at that the next time. But suffice it to say, we've got a lot of good things in store for us. A lot of wonderful things that are ahead. John has described them for us in chapter 19. Daniel has described much of that for us as well. Paul describes some of that for us. And you put it all together. You piece all of the things that are spoken in the Word into a way of understanding that may or may not be correct. I'll admit that. I don't think that I'm 100% accurate in everything that I've described here. But what I am saying, according to the Word of God, whether they happen in the order that I've described or whether they happen at the time that perhaps I've mentioned, I know one thing for certain. They will take place. Because God's Word says so. And His Word is true. 
Are you banking on it? Are you sure that you know what's ahead for you? If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, if you're born again, if you have received the salvation that He offers as a free gift, then you are in that group that will experience those wonderful blessings. If you have not, or if you're living in sin and you've rejected the wonderful blessings that are available to those who would put their trust in Him, then you're in trouble. So you make a choice. You decide. What group do I want to be in? I didn't mention it, but in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, there are actually two suppers. The one that I just described is a glorious time. The other supper, those who are present... will be already dead and the vultures will be consuming their flesh. The supper will be for the clarion, not for men. So I suggest, strongly suggest, we make the right choice. I ask you to think about it in Jesus' name. Be certain. You can know. It's your choice to make.